I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In each episode, we talk about our week in review, then move on to the main event, which is typically a main review or a topic of discussion. Then we finish up with film faves. Our respective lists are 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, typically marching back through time. So, this episode, episode 33, we'll be reviewing Incredibles 2 as our main event, and then film phase will focus on our favorite films of 1997. But first, let's start with our weekend review. Shanna, would you like to talk about a TV show you've discovered recently? Yes, yes I would. I have been watching Britannia, an Amazon Prime exclusive. It features a lot of British stars. Um, so I think we have stars such as David Morrissey, Kelly Reilly. She was the not... she was the bad guy's wife. And she was also the wife to Jude Law and Sherlock Holmes too. So I, I really love her, and she is fierce in this show. And we've also got the talents of Mackenzie Crook. We've got Barry Wood. We've got Joe Armstrong. Who is that woman, Zoe Wanamaker? That's the, I don't have another way to say it, but the broomstick teacher in Harry Potter. Oh. Who I am very fond of. I grew up watching her show, My Family. Uh -huh. A British TV show, and she was she was the mom, and she would have the best facial expressions, and mm. she was just fantastic. I'm so, largely clueless to that cast myself. Oh. Well, if you're a, a BBC fan, then you definitely will know you know recognize a lot of these faces and names. Now, the best way to actually describe the TV show is to just read the description. And what we have here is in 43 AD, the Roman army, determined and terrified in equal measure, returns to crush the, the Celtic heart of Britannia, a mysterious land ruled by warrior women and powerful druids who can do a number of things, but it's all questionable because we have different tribes that are actually with, in, within war with themselves. So... When the Romans get there, they're kind of like, oh, our job's going to be so much easier because what's better than finding out the weakness of your enemy other than the weaknesses themselves? So it's it's very interesting. There's a lot of strong female characters in here, mm -hmm. and I'm very excited to continue the show. I'm on episode four now. Yeah. And lots of pretty visuals, too. The way it's shot, the cinematography, the setting... So. so it doesn't just seem like Game of Thrones or any of the other gritty TV shows. What I will say is now that, you know, it, it starts off really beautiful uh -huh. and it starts with the solstice. So now's a great time to watch it. Oh, a week earlier. It was a great time to watch it. It's showing a lot of the tribe's sacred rituals. Uh -huh. But then all of a sudden the killing starts and it's like blood and guts everywhere because you know that that age i keep forgetting what i'm watching oh. because i'm enjoying like the 
the traditions and the rituals and then all of a sudden there'll be a killing and it's a horrific killing mm. so it's it's not as brutal as game of thrones in that there's constantly someone of a main character dying there's constantly betrayal and all those things i feel like game of thrones is very 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 dramatic okay and this has its drama but i feel like it, it kind of balances out with quiet moments there's an equal balance of quiet versus horrific okay well that is britannia and you can find that on amazon prime yeah yep excellent and so what did you end up watching this week my love well, I have a, a couple movies to talk about uh, since our last episode. First, I'll mention really briefly, I've been trying to catch up on a lot of the award season films that slipped by us. There's only like three or four that we missed. The first one I'll talk about briefly is Call Me By Your Name. Mm. This is the film that stars Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. And it's basically about... A young 24-year-old who comes to stay with his professor's family in Italy. And the son of the professor ends up uh, basically going from, oh, I hate him, he drives me nuts, to eventually becoming infatuated and having a relationship with this guy. I think the difference is like 17 and 24 or 18 and 24 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a lot of people kind of tripped over themselves for this film, thought it was a very beautiful film. It's beautifully shot, but my problem was it was it was really too long. It was not a tight story, uh, not, mm. not a tightly told story. I feel like it went on probably about 20 minutes longer than it needed to, not necessarily in the narrative, but, um, and, you know, the story going too long, but just, like, taking too long to tell the, the story as a whole. And so I felt like it could have been a little bit tighter. I know it's based on a book, and I, it really is one of those cases for me where it felt like they were trying to get in as much of the book as possible. Oh, I see. Anyway, definitely, I mean, it was a good movie, but it was not one of my favorites, and I wouldn't have said it was one of the best movies of the year. Uh, much like Dunkirk, if you recall, and uh, The Shape of Water, actually. Oh, okay, I see. At any rate, so that was uh, Call Me By Your Name, which... You can find very easily right now, wherever you go. The second film I will talk about was not necessarily one that was taken into consideration for awards, but it did get a lot of good reviews. It's called Brad's Status, and stars Ben Stiller, primarily, with some supporting performances by Jenna Fisher, Germain Clement. Oh, okay, yes. You know, he, he's a supporting role in mm-hmm. it. You know, Luke Wilson, and someone else is escaping me. They all offer supporting roles. But really, this is this is Ben Stiller's movie. Mm-hmm. So basically, the premise of the story, which is written and directed by Mike White, is Ben Stiller plays a 47-year-old man who is, uh, his, his son is looking at colleges, and he goes to visit a college with his son. I, I believe it's Yale, if I remember correctly. Okay, wow. So Must be fun to go visit that. Well, you'd think. But the thing is, and this is where the I think the strength of the film really is, is he's looking at this point of his life. This is, this is something where it's kind of like this milestone in his life that's making him realize that his prime is behind him. 
this is what his life is, period. And he's reflecting on whether or not done something with his life, how successful he is. And he especially measures his success compared to his perception of his old college buddies. That's where Luke Wilson and Jermaine Clement come in. And, and Michael Sheen also is another one. And, uh, and all these other guys, as far as he can tell, are rich and hugely successful. One is retiring right now, so he's retiring like 15, 20 years early and oh all these God. things, right? So sexy. Whereas he, Ben Stiller's character, is a guy who owns a nonprofit that helps nonprofits, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're very like middle class, they're just getting by. They're not looking at um, getting any extra help from their parents when they pass away or anything. You know, uh, no, what do you call it? Nothing in the wills. So he is very much realizing this is it. And I couldn't help but really, really identify in some ways with this particular midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, of this internalizing and and existential with with where you are in your life. You know, and this sort of misery. Now, on the one hand, you know, some some people are driven nuts by this character because he's doing all right in general. You know, he's definitely like white, middle class. He's not suffering or anything like that. And so, from certain perspectives, you could kind of be annoyed by the fact that he would at all be troubled with where his life is. But on the other hand, when you take into consideration when you're growing up, you you have certain expectations of what you're going to be and what life is going to be like when yeah. you're a certain age, you know. And if you don't measure up to that, you know, when you get to that point in your life, you realize there's no more potential in your life. This is it, you know. You are where you are, and this is what your life is. And now, from here on out, it's it's retirement's the next milestone, if if at all, you know. And then it being a senior mm. you know old age so i really identified and really thought that that material was handled very well by mike white mm-hmm. and and i think ben stiller gives one of his best performances this is not necessarily overly comedic this meet the parents ben stiller uh this is kind of reality bites a little more nuanced mature and aged ben stiller and it seems like he got most the bulk of the praise too when the film came out and i think with good reason so that's brad's status did this come out this year it came out in 2017 somewhere around september or something of 2017 Uh, and it was just one of those indie movies that got like a limited release i believe Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think you could get it now on amazon prime if i'm not mistaken next and lastly i caught up with the disaster artist which was one of the movies that was talked about during the awards season. This is James Franco's film about the director of 2004's film, The Room, which is a film that in film circles has gained quite a bit of notoriety as being one of the worst movies ever made. The creator of The Room, who James Franco plays, is named Tommy Wiseau. Now, this is a very odd, eccentric dude. He had long, dark black hair, 
very unusual features, unusual eye colors, very much appeared to be middle-aged, but he insisted he was like in his 20s without ever actually saying what year he was born. He had this odd accent. He insisted he's from New Orleans, uh, but it seemed very dubious that he actually was. But this is a guy who wanted to succeed in Hollywood. He fancied himself like a serious actor. Anytime <laughs> he's doing an audition, he's he's doing a Shakespeare scene. Oh my god! Right in this in this insane accent, he's doing a Shakespeare scene, and he's oblivious to his accent, right? So no one would ever cast him if he if he he, he had no range. He was not able to drop the accent and do other accents or anything. If anything, he could have been typecast as like particular types of villains or something, but that's not how he saw himself. He saw himself as a hero. He saw himself as a leading man. Hollywood rejected him, so he and his friend, his friend and his name is Greg Sestero, I believe, they decide, hey, you know, if we can't get work in Hollywood, let's create work ourselves. Let's create a movie. So Tommy, he, he's, he spent months writing a movie, and he decided he's going to direct it. Now, that film ended up being The Room. I haven't seen it. Shannon, you haven't seen it. But word has it, it is awful. And this film, The Disaster Artist, basically depicts the making of that film after the first act. It's funny. It's touching in some ways because it touches on themes of the fact that some of us, we have our limits in our abilities and sometimes we aren't as talented or meant to be certain things that we envision us to be. It touches on this other theme of, you know, if, if you're going to be faced with rejection uh, for, do, for working for others, do it on your own, you know, self-manifest. And as entrepreneurs, in a way, like we can probably identify with that, you know, create your own future. Don't rely on other people to create it for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And then at the same time, the interesting thing about the room is, you know, it was an absolute disaster. Tommy was, I thought he was pouring his heart out and, and, and putting it out into the world as this special thing. And everybody laughed at it because there was so poorly edited and directed and stuff, right? But it did end up, in the long run, bringing people together, just not in the way that he anticipated, in the mm -hmm. sense that it brought people together to enjoy uh, this thing, this one thing. They just enjoyed it as a terrible movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's actually a pretty good film, James Franco does a, uh, gives a pretty good uh, performance, actually, as Tommy Rizzo. You have Seth Rogen in it. You have David Franco in it. You have a lot of recognizable faces in this film, and it's fascinating, even if you haven't seen The Room, just like me. Uh, and I definitely recommend it. I would give it a 7 out of 10. A quick rundown of the other films. I'd give Call Me By Your Name a 6 out of 10 and Brad's Status uh, 8 out of 10. So that's my week in review. And now, Shanna, you and I have watched one thing that we can talk about briefly together. And that was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, not the TV series starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, but the original 1992 movie 
starring Christy Swanson and Luke Perry and Donald Sutherland. And then you have other little guest appearances like Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank, that's right. Bearably irritating. Yes, absolutely. And then you also have Rudger Hauer as the main villain, Merrick, and Paul Rubens, aka Pee Wee Herman at that time. Well, and then there's also the the cool brother, the Arnett, Arquette brother. Yeah, David Arquette. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah, one of my favorite Arquettes. Definitely. So, Shanna, this was your first time really seeing this film. What did you think of it? Oh, boy. I had a really hard time with this film. Probably it, it doesn't, it never helps if all your friends or all your acquaintances or a whole bunch of people that you know are like, oh, it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So cool. The movie's so much better than the TV show. Oh, you've had that experience. Really? Lots of people were telling me that. And I was like, where huh. the frick did you find this thing? And I could never find it. Right. And so for years, I've been thinking, oh, you know, I'll get around to it. It sounds like it's going to be a great experience and mm-hmm. an, empowering, an empowered female role model. And then we started watching it. <laughs> and... It was so horribly disappointing because they're all such bitches and so disgustingly shallow and terribly unaware of anything, really. Yes, that's the idea. They're not even aware of themselves. Yes, that is the idea. And it was like, why are you freaking... I hate this crap. I mean, I have theories about why girls are like that and most of the time they get themselves out of it, so that's great. And they tried to show Buffy getting out of it, but it just wasn't convincing enough. Really? She was nasty for too long, <laughs> probably like five, ten minutes too long. Hmm. And it, it, like it wasn't enough of a change for me. Interesting. They didn't change her enough to, okay. to get me to believe in her, in that she can be a good person. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she goes on in the TV show and she's going to do good things, but... Uh-huh. In this movie, it yeah. was it was horribly upsetting. Now, that being said, that's just about the movie. But then the quality of the movie really upset me, too, where it sounded like they had to re-record the audio afterwards, and it sounded like they were on a set, or maybe that was the problem. They were on a set, and it was terribly echoey, and so the sound just sounded terrible. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's the DVD Mm-hmm. That's the issue, or or what? I've yet to look up the Blu-ray, see if what the quality of the audio is on the Blu-ray. Yes. So I mean, I wouldn't recommend this movie. Actually, this is actually a solid no for me. You like the T? You've seen the TV series. I've seen a couple episodes, and I'd like to revisit that. But I really, if I, I really don't think she was this shadow. Hmm. I mean, it's it's. Well, okay. So yeah, you have to take into consideration. The TV show actually technically takes place after the movie does. So it actually references, as I recall, the incidents of this movie. So yes, she to a degree has had that character growth already by the time the series begins. I will say briefly, I never was a fan of the TV show. I thought the, the TV show was a little too self-aware, uh, a little too wink-winky. The, there's something about the dialogue that always kind of grated on me. And I'm a fan of Joss Whedon. I love Firefly. I love what he typically does with uh, group dynamics. But mm-hmm. Buffy was one of the things that I was never, I, I never really uh, was a fan of. And maybe also I, not, I wasn't a huge fan of Sarah Michelle Gellar. 
I always liked Christy Swanson more. I always had a huge crush on Christy Swanson in this movie. I do like her. I do see the development more than you do in terms of her character growth, her being, in a way, kind of woke compared to her friends after meeting Donald Sutherland's character and, and all that. I found um, Paul Rubens, like, second-in-command vampire to be amusing. Oh, God. Um, Luke Perry, I yeah. find, to be amusing. But here's, here's the thing. Mm. The action choreography is actually quite bad. The any anytime two characters are fighting or tussling in any way, it's pretty damn poor and, and ridiculous. I, I will absolutely admit to that. Mm. And there are like some ways that the film could have been better. This is not like the tightest script. And I know Joss Whedon, while he gets the the script uh, credit, I know that there's some behind the scenes that this is not his vision. And he's not at all proud of this movie in the least. And that's kind of one reason why he's really thrilled that he got to do the series. Because it is what he wanted. That said... Was he in charge of the whole series? Yeah. The whole run of it? As far as I understand. Okay. I believe so. He was the showrunner. Uh, so, at, at any rate, I, like, I still kind of like the movie a little bit more. Even though it is flawed and not great. But it's fun to revisit it 26 years later. I totally get why it doesn't work for you. That's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Now, Shanna, let's move on to the main event with our review of Incredibles 2. Did you wash your hands with soap? Did you dry them? I did. So, are we going to talk about it? What? The elephant in the room. What elephant? Mom's new job. It's time to make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than... Me? <clears throat> Whoa! I like Mom's new job! Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, Dad. They want us to do it this I don't way. know that way. Why would they change math? Uh, math is math. Okay, math Dad. is math. Hello? Hey, honey. How are the kids? Everything's great. Jack, Jack. He's in excellent health. Oh, what the? Num num cookie. Oh, no. Okay. Wow, Daddy, that is freaky. You know it's crazy, right? To help my family, I gotta leave it. To fix the law, I gotta break it. You've got to, so our kids can have that choice. Thank you, young man. Fire, Robert. The screen slater interrupts this program for an important announcement. Suit up, 
It might get weird. I'll be there ASAP. Where you going ASAP? You better be back ASAP. And that was from the trailer to Incredibles 2. All right, so first of all, for those who are not familiar, anytime we do a, re a review of a film, we like to first talk about the good, what we liked about a movie, before moving on with the bad, what we didn't like about a movie, what sort of issues we had with the movie, and then that leads to general discussion sometimes, talking about the themes or general thoughts about the film before we go into spoiler discussion because sometimes you have to get into the nuts and bolts and specifics in order to really articulate our issues or what we liked about the movie and our final thoughts so i will start with the imdb synopsis of what incredibles 2 is about bob parr mr incredible played by craig t nelson is left to care for the kids while helen who is Elastigirl, played by Holly Hunter, is out saving the world. This film is, once again, written and directed by Brad Bird. Now, Shanna, if you'll recall, the original Incredibles came out in 2004. I believe we talked about it during our Film Phase 2004 episode, several episodes back last year. Yes. And at that time, it was considered a better Fantastic Four film than the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. And there were several times during the following years where people were like, oh, you know, Pixar, if you're going to do a sequel, why don't you do Incredibles 2? And Brad Bird was never really terribly interested for, for several years. And I don't know, maybe it's money, I have no idea what, why, but somehow after doing a couple live-action stints, like Tomorrowland and Mission Impossible film, <laughs> he got talked into rethinking Incredibles 2, and here we are. What is it? 14 years later. So, Shanna, let's start simple. What did you like about Incredibles 2? Okay, so my favorite character in this film is Honey, Frozone's wife. Oh, who gets like two lines <laughs> she, in the whole movie. And, you know, it's unfortunate that it's the same, it's, you know, the same scene that we see in the trailer, so it's like totally... You know, like, oh, we didn't get more. So yeah, there's little, nothing more to it. I was absolutely starving for more. But she is just my favorite woman in <laughs> that movie because she is laying down the boundaries and she is making it very clear what her expectations are. I mean, for all we know, she could be a super too and she's just like done with that life and she could just be human and just, you know, she's been very patient with the whole super life of Frozone hmm. or, or maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she started out the gate, like these are the boundaries. And yeah. I just, I, I love hearing that woman's voice because I feel like she's the mother, the wife, the girlfriend in all of us. <laughs> it's like... I just, I get a kick out of her. And I also get a kick out of Edna. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like Edna is this neutral, objective character through mm. the whole thing. Where she is just so super passionate about the people she does get to design for. Mm. So, if, you know, Frozone, Last Girl, Mr. Incredible. Loyalty is definitely important to her and she yes. expects it in return. Yes, so, you know, don't go and have your suit designed by someone else and yeah. think that it's going to be okay with her. Right. 
So yes. <laughs> it's quite lovely. And what I really, in, probably the, the little twist that I really enjoyed in this film was how they depicted caregiving and home taking is hmm. what I'm going to call it. So domestic Parenting? Life. Domestic life, the, the the principal caregiver in the family. So okay. whether you're the mother or the father, someone stays home and watches the kids. So parenting. In. No, I'm talking about single. Yeah, even though there's another one, there's usually the you know they're looking at a time where, you know, families could get away with one goes and works full time and one, pro, you know, provides the care and the caretaking of the home, mm. and. What I really loved was the reverse of the roles mm. compared to the first film. In the first film, you see Helen doing all those things and that, that a mother would do, and she makes it look quite effortless. We don't know if it is effortless or right. not, right. but they depict it as this effortless thing, probably because it's her third kid and she's been doing it for years. Right. That was you know, her role in the family. So when... It's Bob's turn to take over, you know, taking care of the kids in the home and all the things that happen with that. It's really hilarious because he's obviously never done it for an extended period of time. Mm. And so he is wiped. He is trying to get a handle on things. Mm. And I, I love that he had to sleep for 17 hours after looking after Right, taking right. on that role in yeah. order to get back to his normal self, mm. and I, I love the, the like the degeneration of his face, right. and his eye sockets start to appear, and they're yeah. they're they're dark. That's true. And the hair doesn't look very incredible at all, and right. then the facial hair too. The yeah. facial hair starts to come in, yeah. and I mean he's just he's slumped. It's <laughs> it's just awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and. I love how he's dealing with being a parent. He, you know, got an adolescent teenage girl, yeah. a preteen. No, no, she's is definitely she a teen? teen. She's definitely okay. a teen. So you've got she's the, in high school. You've got the teen girl who's ready to reject what doesn't sit right with her, and yeah. she's got these emotions, and yeah. you know, you're dad, you're not mom, and you have no idea. So sure, sure. it's it's really fantastic. I love seeing the depiction of that, <laughs> and you've got. You know, Dash is having an interesting time with math in school, and they freaking changed math again, which I can totally relate to with my right. parents because that happened every three to four years mm-hmm. growing up for me. And then you've got the baby with all the superpowers. He's just trying to keep it all together, and he's trying to make the best of it, and he doesn't want Helen to worry, but at the same time, he's struggling with how he feels. He's sad and a little perturbed that he wasn't called upon. Right. To and that makes sense because if you remember in the first film, he was quite miserable in his job mm-hmm. and he was sneaking off to be a super again. Mm-hmm. And so for him to be in a situation where he can't do that again, it makes sense that it makes him anxious and jealous and he's, he's a little frustrated. Mm. I, I really enjoyed him struggling again mm-hmm. with not being who he wants to be yeah and then it becomes this this broader subject of well we should allow people to be who they need to be and who they want to be 
especially if it doesn't hurt anyone. I really enjoyed that this film could also be interpreted as a commentary on... You're saying being yourself. Yeah, but it also, you know, puts it quite... The best way to say it is, you know, they've they've made who they who they are. It's illegal to be who they want to be. Yeah, that was established and in the first movie. That's really well. It seems a little more forced, you know. It, it seems like they're talking about it more. It's not just a, oh, we're gonna be who we want to be in hiding. It's like no, we're actually gonna fix it right. because yeah. a company teams up with them yeah. and wants to help them help make it legal again. Yeah, and I just thought it was really interesting. Okay. I would say it's probably somewhat problematic when you're talking, when you get into using Mr. Incredible as an example of that, but we can get into that a little bit later, uh, perhaps. Or was there anything else you liked about the movie? Oh, I loved Elastigirl, uh-huh. of course, and being able to see what she could do, because it was, it was kind of her show this time around. And that was really enjoyable for us to learn more about her. What did you like about it? Well, in general, I found the movie quite fun, and there is a lot to enjoy about the film on a very surface level. It does some really cool things. You do get introduced to other superheroes in the, in the film, and I would say that of the new superheroes, there is a particular character named Void, mm-hmm. who is played by someone I'm not terribly familiar with, named Sophia Bush. Now, Sophia Bush, other people may know from One Tree Hill and such (laughs) gems like John Tucker Must Die and The Hitcher remake. (laughs) She's done a bunch of other TV things too, just little one-offs here and there. So I'm not really familiar with her, but I liked her character quite a bit. Of all the new supers that we meet, in this film it's always great to get the band back together yeah you know sam jackson craig t nelson holly hunter what's her name sarah vowell you know all the family is really awesome and then katherine keener joins the cast as well as bob odenkirk they play the siblings who own the company you referred to that is trying to team up with the incredibles and they're they're fine they're good i have you know I like the cast, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And I like some of the things they do with some of the action set pieces, uh, particularly with the superhero abilities. I do have more to say, though, in the next section of our review. I I think it's worth talking about what this movie is trying to say and whether or not it does so successfully. So... I guess I'll I guess I'll I'll kind of rest there and kick it back to you Shanna in terms of was there anything that you had problems with with this movie? One of the things I didn't ask was how did this compare to the original for you? Was it as good did it improve on the original? Are you glad that this one exists or was this something that ultimately Pixar didn't really need to do? Yeah, I'm really glad that it exists and I'm really glad that Pixar went ahead and did it. Okay. I I mean, I have to see the first one again, but I think that I enjoy this one a bunch more. Really? I mean, I love The Incredibles. Okay. The first one, but I think I really like this one. I mean, there's a couple things that happen later in the film that are spoilerific, but I, 
I really like this one more, I think. I felt like there was more. Fascinating. So was there anything about the film that, oh, that you, I didn't like? That you had any issues with? Or uh, um, any flaws or, or things that was bad about the movie? You know, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Really? I foresaw who the villain was going to be. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because at the end of the day, the film's made for kids as well. So. I don't think that necessarily determine should determine how predictable a movie should be. Okay, fine. I mean, you're entitled to that opinion. I Of course I'm entitled <laughs> to that opinion. I don't have a problem with it. Okay. I, I, I don't. Okay. I, it's, it's a little predictable, but it doesn't break the film for me. I highly recommend this film, especially okay. to moms and daughters and little kiddos. And it's nice for dads, too, because we should start seeing dads in the, the primary caregiver role more often. I would agree with that. However, uh-huh. I will say, first and foremost... Introducing what Jeff had a problem with. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to be a wet blanket, but ultimately, here's my thoughts on Pixar sequels and prequels, too. Toy Story aside, I find that Pixar's sequels and prequels to be inferior to the originals. Okay. Finding Dory, what was another one? Cars 2, Monsters University. At best, they're good. Mm. I would say Incredibles 2 is good. Mm-hmm. But Pixar set, set the bar really high during its first decade, Cars aside. You know, with Toy Story, Bugs Life, Monsters, Inc., Toy Story 2, Toy Story 2, Finding Nemo, Wally up all those films Ratatouille really set the bar any of those movies that had sequels or prequels really did not measure up but is that just because it's an add-on I mean like if this film was a couple things tweaked you know if this was the only film like would it change how you felt about it I feel like you know the ones that you've mentioned. If 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 we're looking at Finding Dory as a, as a standalone film, I I would think it's still a, a terrible movie, given how they treated their effects and their water and their mm. their storyline. Mm. You know, a good di- the good dinosaur. I mean, the visual if comparatively, yeah. the visual effects were really fantastic, but the story suffered a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like, if this if Incredibles two was the one. With a couple of tweaks to make it seen as the only one, like would it? Would you still like it? Are you saying that if the incre- first Incredibles didn't happen and this was the only Incredibles movie, would with I like it? With a couple it? tweaks, yeah. I like it regardless. I just don't think it's as good as okay. the uh, as Pixar's original stuff. Okay. And there's a couple of reasons why, and I'll get into uh, some of those. So first of all, I feel like the whole premise of now the dad's home taking care of the kids while the mom's out working. Yeah, there's some enjoyable moments, but it's very much a sitcom premise. And I kind of feel like the movie... It, it Remember, this takes place right after the first Incredibles movie, right? So this film is, in a way, stuck in a 2004 mentality. And, and I feel like that whole premise of, oh my gosh, now we get to see the dad have a challenge... I mean, we saw it in Mr. Mom in the early 80s, and and I feel like we are kind of beyond the dad 
a kind of goofball, struggling, dads can't do it as good as women can kind of thing. And so when you, when you, when you kind of really think about the, the basic premise, it's kind of like, hmm, we could have probably done a little bit better, guys. Okay. Other th- small things. Okay. I'll, I'll, that's a big thing. I'll, I'll scale it back a little bit. I've noticed that Dash really doesn't have much of a struggle in this movie. The, 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 most of the focus is really on Violet and to a degree Jack-Jack, but only in how everybody relates to Jack-Jack and dealing with Jack-Jack, hmm. not just because he's a baby, but because he's a baby that's got all these, like, he's got all the powers practically, right? Uh-huh. But so I feel like Dash sort of suffers a little bit as a result. His main problem is he has math homework. And okay, really, but, but isn't that really, everyone's problem? And really, the dad struggles with it more than Dash does. Well, and I appreciate <laughs> you know that. It's cute. Without sure. Google. He's struggling without Google. Okay, fine. You can look that stuff up nowadays. I don't think Google even existed back then. But... That's why I'm saying he's like, he's a great dad. <laughs> he went and like learned how to do that math overnight. Sure, sure. I get it. I get it. But that's like, I wish that was kind of the biggest problem. The, the biggest problem with the movie is I, I found the, uh, the, the villain story quite predictable. I guessed who it was. I was hoping who it was was actually a red herring and the film was going to be smarter than me because Pixar can be smarter than me. This, you know? is, this is a good point. And it wasn't. And so it was a little bit of a disappointment in that way. Brad was the only writer on this, which doesn't happen very often or with a Pixar film. And I kind of feel like this could have used the Pixar mastermind or whatever they call it, you know? People coming together and really thinking about the story. Kind of like what they did for Up. Yeah, right? And and most of their films. Kind of like, okay, how could we take this idea further? Mm. You know? Mm. And I don't don't know anything about the behind the scenes or the dynamics. I don't know if people just don't, can't say no to Brad Bird at this point because he is Brad fucking Bird. You know, or or what? But I really feel like there could have been more collaboration in the script just to take things a little bit further. And also, the basic mechanic of the villains, what the villain does, has a very very simple solution, guys. And and and, and this is that to just explain that it's really more in spoiler talk because I think it doesn't actually come into play till the second half of the movie. Mm, yes. But it has a very simple solution, guys. And. Again, it's a matter of the film being smarter than me and kind of just just falling short of what I expect from Pixar. Shannon's just like, ugh, dude. I mean, I think you kind of have a point with a like, oh, we've seen it in this movie and that movie. Like, what is it called? Bad Mom? Dad Mom? Mom Dad Dad? Mom? (laughs) What is it called? Well, Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom. In the early 80s. Okay. Well, I mean, I wasn't exposed to that. I've never seen that, and I don't think it came to South Africa. But surely you've seen other things playing with the same premise. <sighs> no. That's no, I, very odd. I really odd. haven't. That's very odd. I really haven't. Hmm. And I, yeah, sure, maybe it's my fault, but I bet that there's other people, like many, many people like that, like me out there, that are waiting to see the role reversed. But I really feel like, yeah, okay, we get stay-at-home dads now. But honestly, we don't see stay-at-home dads in cartoons, in animated films. Okay. We have seen it in things like the Parenthood TV show. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah. And a little bit in Bad Moms. That's only because his wife died of cancer last year. So, Uh, I mean, really, from like a female perspective, a female like me, and what I'm being exposed to, I don't see the roles reversed. I I don't see it. I see it in society. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I, I see the state, I see the primary caregiver dad yeah uh every now and again i even see manny's every every now and again sure but i'm not seeing it in media so i really appreciate it for that but i can understand how someone like you has been exposed to different things like that would be a little annoyed i'm yeah it just slightly disappointed me and i will say one thing i was reluctant about the movie going in because i was like well do i really want to see them like taking a story about the Incredibles not being the Incredibles, even though we you know it supposedly takes place right after the Incredibles and you know I was really reluctant about that, but I will say that it actually that is not at all what bothered me about this movie. It it it, it actually pulled that off acceptably, so I was able to go with it taking place right after the first film, and and the direction that it does go kind of gets us back to where the last film ended and so that's nice let's talk in general a couple minutes about the themes of the film what what is this thing trying to say what is it looking at we have on the one hand it's talking about as you had said be yourself don't let government or whoever else tell you not to be yourself but at the same time i feel like there's a tension there with the with bob parr's role in this because he's not allowed to be himself he has to take care of the home while his wife is able to be herself and work and do what she enjoys he also says to her go do this so that the laws can change so that we can all be ourselves in the open that's fair that's absolutely true that's absolutely he does acknowledge that even though it's painful rejection for him yeah it does he does get down to the point of like you need to because you have because you are the good choice, you must go and lay the path stones for the rest of us, essentially. Now, that's true. However, we, it's important to acknowledge he's not saying that in the most supportive manner. He, it's like painful for him to admit <laughs> this. There's a little bit of chauvinism, a little bit of ego. That's uh, okay. That. I mean, if you really realistically think about it, that reaction that they got out of him uh-huh. and the way they depicted it, I mean, I believe that that would be what it would look like. Hmm. I guess I wish he was a little more progressive than that. You know, a little more supportive but of... But this is the 1950s, isn't it? No, ni- 2004, man. No, 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 no. No. Yeah, no, it's no, not... It's not. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, if you look at all the architecture and everything, we're in a different time. I'm pretty sure that's not accurate. Okay, so Shanna well, just looked it up. Yes, it takes place in 1962, and there is a moment in the first Pixar Incredibles film where Bob is reading the newspaper, and you can actually see it says May 16th, 1962. Okay, so I stand corrected. Yes, you do. I wish that was made a little more clear in the films. Because you, there is a time, there is a certain degree of timelessness to the quality of the world that's created. It, it is not hammering home. This is 1962 at all. 
Well, no, I think they were wanting to be subtle about it, but if you pay attention to the fashion and you pay attention to how the clothes are sitting on the characters and you pay attention to the technology that's around them, like the television sets and the motel decor and the architecture, you're able to tell this isn't happening right now. And okay. this isn't just someone being nostalgic. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. At any rate, do we think then it's acceptable for these characters to be chauvinistic? I'm not saying that it's acceptable for anything or anyone to be chauvinistic at any okay. point in time, but it is a different time. Okay. And men were, you know, generally speaking, men were not that progressive. Let's be honest here. There's absolutely nothing in, at all that lets us know in how people relate to Frozone that is that it is 1962, though. Yeah. I mean, everybody seems to get along with Frozone and several other black characters no pro- with no problem. Well, you do have a good point there, yes. You know? Uh, I find that kind of curious. If we're going to go there... Okay. You know, then we may as well go there. <laughs> okay, you, you have know? a point. That's um, something I didn't think about. Yeah, so... He is- the only African-American super no, he's, that... No, he's not. There's, they're, they're not very well developed, but there are a couple others in, in that we meet in this film. Was there any other like themes that you felt the film is really trying to play with or, or tackle? I felt like there was a touch of immigration, but that's just me really heavily reading into it due to what we're dealing with in society right now. The I need police to... cameras... That was very interesting. Yeah. That was, well, it's a hideaway camera. It's, it's not established as a police camera. No, but it's, um, it's the same concept. You yeah. Know, the, the supers, or in particular Elastigirl, has a camera on her chest that videos all of her interactions, very much like what police officers are currently implementing with their interactions on the field. Yeah, so that was very interesting. I mean... It kind of, I don't want to get into spoilers, so I can't take this conversation too much further, but... Okay, let's come back to it, but I will say, I don't, I I thought they were going to make some sort of commentary Mm -hmm. with it, and I don't think it really goes anywhere. I think there's a lot of little things that could be commentary on certain issues that society has been dealing with over the last decade, Uh but it, it, like you said, it doesn't take it completely further. Shall we move to spoilers? Yeah, it sounds like you have a couple things that uh, you need to articulate in yeah. spoiler discussion. And I just have one thing, so let's uh, let's get on with it. For spoilers for Incredibles two, starting now. Are they gone? Uh, are they all gone? It's a Toy Story reference, but okay. So... Okay, fair enough. <laughs> all right, so Shanna, Pixar nonetheless. Spoilers for Incredibles two. What's the first thing you want to articulate? Well, I wanted to say, seeing as how we were just talking about, like, is there any commentary on society in this film? There is one moment where at the, you know, we haven't spoken about this yet, but Violet at the end of the movie, the villain has has been arrested. And I'm sorry, but she's she's got a lot of money. And oh yeah, I the one percent thing. I think she's just going to get a slap on the wrist. Yeah, yeah. Like nothing's actually going to happen to her. And I yeah. appreciate you so much for letting me laugh shockingly loud at that. Oh. And nobody else in the cinema was paying attention 
or was dead tired after Father's Day lunch or breakfast or something. I will say the crowd kind of was. Wow. Uh, I, was, I wouldn't say that the crowd wasn't enjoying the movie. It was a very difficult crowd. Oh my I mean, gosh. we had a lot of young kids, and it was very distracting at times. So, but anyway. that was a great moment. Oh, that was so great! I was very surprised by that moment. I wish it did more with that in some way, you know, because that just seemed to be like a tacked on "oh snap" kind of thing, you know. It was, I appreciated it, but I wish there was more moments like that through the film. Mm. That would have made it sharper. It would have been very entertaining too yeah. it would have been the appropriate movie to do that with yeah absolutely what, uh, what else I enjoyed the villain even though it was predictable about who she was going to be yeah. I enjoyed who she was mm. I enjoyed that she was this you know very passionate about her work and making her work work for her her inventions work for her yeah and her big plan which she must have been planning this for at least five years you know mm. there's no way you could just hash dash put it together right right and there's a lot of resentment there well you're saying her big plan what is her big plan oh her big plan to allow her brother who she has a bit of resentment toward because of the loss of her parents and how he looks through the loss of their parents through rosy colored glasses equating the loss of them with the illegalization of uh, supers yeah, because let's... they they get burgled and murdered, I assume. I remember for sure it was the dad that got was shot. I don't know that the mom was shot. Oh, okay. But to be to be clear, the the father he believed he was a big supporter in the superheroes and the super community. He had a couple direct lines to a couple superheroes, and according to the daughter, played by Catherine Keener. The mom supposedly begged, though we don't ever see this, supposedly begged the father to go into a safe room uh, with her. Instead, he decided to call supers to come and help, and he got shot after not getting a hold of anyone, and he died. The brother took that to interpret, ah, um, we need the supers there yes. to help us, and the, the sister took that as, no, Home protection is the way uh, to go. They should have defended themselves, and and which is a, in itself thematically, it has some interesting current events commentary. Ah, like what? Well, you're literally arguing for outside uh, law enforcement or what have you versus home defense. I I didn't quite interpret it like that but i can understand where you're coming from mm -hmm. yes what i'm trying to say is i loved seeing a villain that was kind of in her own world mm. and you know she had conversations with helen elastigirl about they have these really interesting conversations with each other talking about you know women in these sort of high positions these really important positions for society and how you know they're happy to be there and but there's it doesn't it comes at a cost with certain things from their own different experiences like helen needs to leave her family and that tears her apart a little bit mm. because her family is her number one priority even though she's doing something for the greater good for her family she's missing out on the everyday greater good you know being there to help with homework being there to you know with a baby blah 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 
So it's just really interesting that, you know, it was these two girls having this mo- these little moments together mm-hmm. that, that I crave so much to see. Mm. And then she became a villain because I guess Helen just didn't see, see through her. That was very interesting to me. Well, she became a villain because she wanted to stop supers from being legalized. Well, but what's really good about it is she allowed her brother to take it mm-hmm. to a point where it was going to become legal because that was the only way her brother was going to let, let it go, I let feel. Go. Bringing supers back. Hmm. You know, it was, it was at the point where it was going to be good. So she had to plan a few steps ahead yeah. to make sure that she could sabotage that issue yeah, yeah so that she could shut it down for good and i really like that hmm okay so except my other issue is there's one simple problem to her entire plan all they had to do was just close their eyes when one of those goggles that she was using to control them put on them and all they had to do was just close their eyes and take it off simple I think that it was uh, visually established that once a person saw the hypnotic illustrations that they could not close their eyes because they couldn't take their eyes off of it. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah. But you see it after a couple seconds of it being on you. And several of these characters, they go into the situation knowing that this is what's happening. And so you think, okay, I'm going to be prepared. And as soon as they start to feel someone trying to put something on their head... You think they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to close my eyes and take this off or whatever, you know? It just seems mm-hmm. like it seems like there's a real simple solution to this that could have avoided a lot of problems, mm-hmm. you know? At any rate, that's that's all I had really to talk about in spoilers. Did you have any final thoughts about the film? No, I think it was great, and I think everybody should see it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate it? A 7? Maybe a 7.5? Okay, excellent. So you thought the the good definitely outweighed the bad. Yeah. I would say that the good does outweigh the bad, but there's a lot of things that that was a bit of a disappointment. So I would probably give this film also a 7 out of 10, marginally. But what did you think about Incredibles 2? If we're to believe Box Office Mojo... And it's $182.6 million opening weekend. Chances are you've seen the film too. Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now, Shanna, it is time for Film Fave. I'm going to do something that it took over 30 episodes for me to figure out how to do. Oh, yes. Good. And that (laughs) that is to actually read off of the original Film Faves article. This is from Film Faves 1997. gives a pretty good idea of what Film Faves is. It is a segment of the show, though, that is inspired by an original, what, an original feature on, yeah. on the blog, the Gibson Review blog. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Film Faves is a feature wherein we count down our favorite movies as a specific topic of film. Is not intended as an objective best of list, merely a subjective celebration of film and a peek at what we love the most. And also, it's uh, geared towards sharing, hopefully, with you films that maybe you haven't heard of. And as such, 
we try to point you in the direction of where you can find them available to stream, such as Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and HBO Now. Film Phase counts down 12 favorites, skipping the traditional honorable mentions because 10 is often too few, but anything more than a dozen can get a bit out of hand. Currently, we're going back in time year by year. We're starting with 1997 in this episode, so let's get right to it. The year 1997. This year was actually a pretty good year for movies. It was a year that featured a good share of comedies that were huge hits and became a part of pop culture for a time, such as The Full Monty and Men in Black. There were also a lot of decent action films that did pretty well at the box office, like Pierce Brosnan's second time stepping into 007's shaken not stirred line of work in Tomorrow Never Dies, The President kicks terrorists off his plane, Air Force One, and the highly anticipated Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World. Actually, 1997 saw the release of many good films, including The Apostle, Breakdown, Con Air, Donnie Brasco, Face Off, G.I. Jane, The Game, Gattaca, The Ice Storm, Jackie Brown, My Best Friend's Wedding, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, Seven Years in Tibet, and Wag the Dog. I'm going to pause here and say, in retrospect, Face Off, Jackie Brown, not a big fan of. Are you? I've never seen Face Off. Oh. And we did see Jackie Brown together yes at one point and i guess i just wasn't that into it yeah yeah unfortunately chris farley a saturday night live favorite died in 1997 of a cocaine overdose beverly hills ninja would not be his last film film uh, which came out in 1997 as almost heroes and an appearance in the film dirty work would both be released in 1998 it seems that the 90s produced a lot more crap films than the aughts but Maybe that's just us. But even a good year like 1997 trotted out an American Werewolf in Paris, Anaconda, Batman and Robin, Bean, Excess Baggage, George of the Jungle, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Metro, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, The Peacemaker, The Postman, The Saint, Spawn, Speed 2, Cruise Control, Spice World, Steel, <laughs> Vegas ba- Vacation, and many others, which I'm sure... None of these populate your list. I'll also note that 97 was a big year for ensembles. You have a lot of films with huge casts, several of which we will talk about uh, as we go through our list. But it is interesting to, to note and be aware of a lot of great casts in a lot of, a lot of movies in 1997. But, Shanna, why, uh, why don't you get us started with your 12th favorite film of 1997 my number 12 just so happens to be liar liar this stars jim carrey as a as an attorney Mm -hmm. who lies for a living (laughs) and his dishonesty doesn't just occur in the courtroom it oozes out into his relationships with his son and now divorced ex-wife ah played by maura tyranny if memory serves oh yes that's right was in that sitcom news radio at the time ah yes i quite enjoyed seeing her anyway i really like this film because you know this was jim carrey in his heyday Hmm. and i really loved jim carrey i loved how insane he was what ends up happening is his son max who's played by justin cooper makes a wish for his dad to stop lying for 24 hours and the problem is, because he can't lie, <laughs> his work becomes quite interesting. 
mm-hmm. because now he can't defend how he usually defends. Mm-hmm. And his relationships with his family do something interesting too. <laughs> so <laughs> And hilarity ensues. And hilarity ensues. I mean, my favorite moment in this film is when he's trying he's figuring out that he cannot lie. It cannot come physically out of as words out of his yes. his mouth. And he's saying the color of this pen and he can't even write right. uh, it's blue but he can't even write black right and <laughs> it's, it's just great because he's wrestling with this pen and it's like this pen has a mind of its own because it's like we're not lying today sir that that scene in particular is a great bit of physical comedy <laughs> in i would say all of jim carrey's career i miss that so much mm-hmm. very cool very cool my number 12 is actually the same as it was in the original article it is titanic which itself is a great example of the ensembles that you saw in 1997. let me just run through this cast list very quickly here leonardo dicaprio kate winslet billy zane kathy bates francis fisher gloria stewart bill paxton bernard hill david warner victor garber jonathan hyde do I really need to continue? There's a lot of people in this movie, and it's obviously probably the most overhyped film of this year that we're talking about. Oh, yeah. You know, it was the best picture, but you have to remember it was an actual legit phenomenon. It was the first film I saw twice in a movie theater. Oh, yeah. And primarily because the last hour of the actual sinking of the Titanic in the big screen was one hell of an experience and it was i felt it was as close as i ever was going to be to being and witnessing the actual sinking of the titanic Mm. yes the celine dion song is nigh unbearable 21 (laughs) years later only because it just got fade so much right here here it is it is a great movie still here's why This film's plot may involve a love story, but it's really about the ship through and through. The film takes its time in order to familiarize the audience with the ship's geography and how it was organized to suit the class system of the time. Cameron excels at depicting the contrasting atmospheres of the upper-class top deck with the lower-class lower decks. This film is rich in detail, and only a director as committed and passionate as James Cameron could achieve such a level of detail. And it pays off! because it really helps you feel like you're on the ship and know it well. The last hour is spectacular on both a visual and emotional level. So, as for the love story, it's a construct. You know, basically it's a construct to which to help us better experience some of the class conflicts and have an emotional anchor to what is otherwise a disaster film, you know? And, you know, your, your mileage may vary on that. Uh, but I think it succeeds and especially because of Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio. Uh, so that is Titanic. That's my number 12. My number 11 is Men in Black. This is starring... <laughs> it's my number 11 also. Oh, what? Okay, so we've got Will Smith. We've got Tommy Lee Jones. We've got uh, Linda Fiorentino. We've yeah. got Vincent D'Onofrio. We've got Rip Torn. We've got Tony Shalhoub, my favorite. And yeah. we've even got Vern Troyer. Really, Vern Troyer? Yeah, as Alien Son. Huh. Okay. And David Cross. So <laughs> David Cross. Yeah. This is like their their essential tagline is it's the best kept secret in the universe. It's right. secretly funded, uh, government agency, and who doesn't love those? <laughs> and 
what you know they're providers of immigration services That's true Good and point. regulates all alien life etc on earth you know what they don't do they don't separate families yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't so not actually funny but there we go <laughs> anyway so i you know this film is just so fantastic and i think it still holds up pretty well uh there, there's one or two shots that look Oh, you mean visually? Not, yeah. Yeah. Like maybe not decent, but it's also a really good theme. They should bring this back for the, you know, the societal events that we're having right now. Anyway, what's really fun about this film is it looks like an airport, you know, where the long oh, yeah. immigration lines, you know, you're coming into the country, coming into the earth. Uh, into the planet and you've got to have all your paperwork and if you're not totally passing like you are being interviewed to the nines and <laughs> like there's even a pregnant couple and yep. like the poor human is like i don't know <laughs> he's like freaking out i don't know if you remember that you're but talking about the labor scene i i was talking about something else like maybe you see her earlier her, her or him or huh they uh, see them earlier in the film hmm. when they're going through immigration oh, okay. and then I don't remember I guess there's that part too I forgot about that part yeah. but that was that was insanely awesome yeah. and gross at the same time yes so uh, you know I also think of like you've got all this backup that's happening because you've got issues I can't remember what was going on but there's all this baggage everywhere physical baggage everywhere in the immigration center huh. and then we you know eventually we move out of that and you know there's a really couple of really funny scenes like will smith dragging a chair closer to the table yes have, the test you have these yes the recruitment also the unfunctional chairs yes. and these poor people have to take a test that is still hilarious to this day and it's really fun because you see all these military guys yes they've been told what to do yes they have not been told that they have permission to use a table or anything like that sure they're doing what they were told to do sure <laughs> it's hilarious yes. and then will smith he's not the military he's, guy he's out of the box also. and yes. he just grabs that table and he brings it closer to him yes. it's like such a great solution and such a contrast between the two different kinds of applicants that were happening there sure sure i put this at number 11 because like titanic it's uh, one of the movies that i really like but i'm, I'm still really burned out on i still haven't oh. even seen men in black 3 the film's very well done it's probably barry sonnenfeld's best film it has a great score by Danny Elfman. Yes! Will Smith is fantastic. He bounces off of Tommy Lee Jones' Straight Man very well. I'm just burned out of it uh, and have been for about 10, 20 years. Maybe because it was really, really popular like Titanic was. It was everywhere. Well, but... and it was also, it came out when it, when it was time for it to come to the next phase, not cinema. When it was time for it to come out to own. Yeah. That was when DVDs were starting, at yes. least in South Africa. So yes. it was like the one DVD you could get. Ah, gotcha, so. gotcha. So yeah, it's my number 11 also. What's your number 10? My number 10 is Copland, which you suggested oh. to me. Uh, yes. You said we should maybe check it. it out. Yes. And that was awesome. So we've got... Also an a great example of an ensemble. Do you want to run through the cast real quick? Oh, why don't you help me run through the cast? Okay, I can are. do that. It obviously stars... Oh, not so obvious, because not everybody knows this movie. Uh, I'll first say it's directed by James Mangold, who also directed Logan, uh, what, last year? Yes. Um, the, the Wolverine film, very gritty. Also Walk the Lion, Johnny Cash movie. 
Sylvester Stallone stars as, of course, as a sheriff of of, of a town. We'll get into in a moment. Um, he's very ineffectual. In a, uh, he's you know he's got a damaged ear. He wasn't able to join the police force in New York. The cast includes Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Harvey Keitel, Annabella Sciorra, Michael Rappaport, Robert Patrick. Gosh, I didn't see Robert Patrick. Are you kidding? He was one of the main guys. I never recognize him when he's younger. Oh, Peter Berg, Janine Garofalo is in it, Kathy Moriarty, John Spencer, uh, Noah Emmerich, Debbie Harry is apparently in this, but I don't remember that. Edie Falco. Yeah, so many people are in this film. Huge cast, uh, wonderful ensemble. But tell me what you thought of Copland. I really enjoyed seeing this whole entirely made up of blue bloods. (laughs) <laughs> kind yeah. of film yeah. you know it's it's all cops it's yeah. a cop it's a cop land you yeah know? it's a town where all the cops from new york city live or at least a whole unit mm-hmm. of them or whatever they kind of got the they they organized to get a piece of land for the cops to have so that they could ha- provide you know stable home structure to their yeah. families etc good yeah exactly which is everybody's right really sure you know but what I really enjoyed about it was I actually enjoyed Sylvester Stallone, who mm-hmm. I hate with a passion. Right. I mean, it's just, he's well. just one of the actors that just grinds me the wrong way. Okay, but he's good in this, right? But this yeah. was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know, you know, I, I didn't even have the name Sylvester Stallone stuck in my head. Um, like you didn't realize it was him? No, it's just it wasn't that wasn't running through my head, reminding me like, oh. hey, it's not, this is not the one that we like to hear from. We'll okay. Um, and I really like Michael Rappaport, and I really loved that they touched a couple of different themes within the police world. Michael Rappaport, he messed up, and uh, he was going to go to jail. The yep. uh, the independent investigation. I don't know. I can't. Internal remember. affairs. Yes, they were go- led by Robert De Niro. Yes, they were going to figure it out, you know, and so he tries to get away from them and so all the cops are helping him and then it becomes this you know other things start to unfold and you know Robert De Niro's character comes to Copland to further investigate and he sees things that would otherwise people would get ticketed for or get arrested for or Mm -hmm. get a citation whatever and none of that's happening in Copland and he's noticing it and he's kind of approaching Sylvester Stallone and Sylvester Stallone isn't even really responding. He's just taking it in what this guy is saying. And yeah, I mean, he's, 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 he's the quiet type. He's like the observer. He's a nice guy. He's very reluctant to create any conflict or, or shake things up. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he considers these guys his friends. You know, and, and Harvey Keitel's character in particular is one of the main people who helped create this place for everybody to live. Yes. And got him the sheriff position. Well, and it's a really fun action film, especially the last half an hour. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really exciting. So yeah. I highly recommend this film. Very cool. My number 10 is Private Parts, starring Howard Stern. I came home with this film in 1997. And my mother was like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Not a movie for a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, now, even I 
based on Howard Stern's reputation at the time, was very reluctant coming into this film. And there are moments when its commitment toward presenting Stern in the best light is questionable. However, I was completely won over by Stern's performance. He is as much a natural in front of the camera as he is behind a mic. And he's very funny, too. Mm. Um, Paul Giamatti actually stars in this film, a very early role as Stern's nemesis at WNBC. <laughs> this early role as Pig Vomit gives us some great chemistry as he and Stern antagonize each other, you know? But it, it may not be the cold, hard truth as Stern's divorce from his wife years later kind of undermined the overall message of the film, the heart of it. But it's still surprisingly enjoyable to watch. Now, interestingly enough, though, there are there's these interstitials that watching today are a little awkward because it's all about, like, getting the girl naked on camera. It's very, like... Uh-huh. It's very, its like, time. Howard Stern, you know, gimmicky sort of thing that he mm-hmm. would do on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I wish it, it did without that. The actual biopic aspect of it is funny and enjoyable. So... It's at number 10, but it's on my list nonetheless. What is your number 9, Shanna? Mine is Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, how fun. (laughs) I just missed my list. Ten years after their high school graduation, Romy by Mira Sorvino and Michelle Lisa Kudra, who I just adore in this film, (laughs) haven't exactly accomplished everything that they set out to do. Despite their strong friendship, their personal and professional lives are still lacking. When they hear of their upcoming high school reunion, they take it to an opportunity to show their classmates how much they've changed. First by trying to reform themselves, then by creating a lie that eventually spins out of control. Yeah, post-its. I mean, you're... you're, you're, you're oh, God, that was you're just You're like funny. halfway through the movie here, but yeah. One of them is Janine Gar- Garofalo. Oh, she's in it? Yeah, she's the one that tells them post-its were invented by... So and so, I learned that in business school. Duh, uh, guys. <laughs> so it's like there to pop the bubble, you know. Alan Cumming is also in it. What else did you um, have to say about this? I think it's just a really fun film, mm-hmm. and it's it's a good girls' night film. Definitely. Well, the next film on my list at number nine is Goodwill Hunting, starring, of course, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Robin Williams, principally. Uh, Casey Affleck is also in this, and of course. You know, this is the film where that Affleck and Damon wrote and won the Oscar for, and it still holds up very well. Minnie Driver plays the love interest in the film. It's very, very moving, and I think really this film works primarily because of Robin Williams. I think he really makes the film interesting. You know, if anybody else were cast in that role other than Robin Williams, I don't know that this film would be A, as well-remembered, or B, work as well as it does. Now, don't get me wrong, Matt Damon is no slouch in this movie, you know, and and Ben Affleck has a couple uh, choice scenes himself, too. Yeah, Robin Williams is really obviously the, the standout here. If you want to see one of his best dramatic works, this is definitely it because he plays, in case you don't know, a psychiatrist who is a widow um, and he is asked by a friend of his to kind of help get this 20-something guy who's, got, who's kind of a, a savant. He's 
got a brilliant mind for math and science, I believe. Got to get him on the right track. He's got a big chip on his shoulder and all that sort of stuff. That uh, is played by Matt Damon. But even Mini Driver is uh, somewhat charming in this film, very enjoyable. We'll talk more about Mini Driver in a moment, but yeah, Goodwill Hunting is still a good film, worth watching. Shanna, what is your number eight? Well, I mean, I was going to interrupt you, but you did such a good job talking about it. It's Goodwill Hunting. Is there anything you want to say about it? I just really enjoyed the performances. Mm-hmm. I thought the performances were just surprisingly beautiful because this was a film that's fairly different and I was expecting one thing but got another. The thing that I got was thoroughly enjoying their performances. My number eight is Copland. Circling back to that, easily one of Sylvester Stallone's best performances of his career, probably among his top three performances. More than likely the other two are Rocky and Creed. But uh, this film really surprised me. And I think a lot of people came to this film, or came out of this film, saying to others, did you see Copland? Sylvester Stallone's really good. You know, you gotta think, like, prior to this, he was doing a bunch of Rambo sequels and a few Rocky sequels and Demolition Man. You know, he he was kind of a ridiculous action man. So it's a shame we don't get to see this side of Stallone more because I do know that there is more to him than the Expendables and, you know, Rambo sequels and all that, you know? So, anyway, the cast is also great, and James Mangold definitely showed promise here, and he would deliver for most of his career afterwards. So, it's if you're not familiar with it, definitely check out Copland. Shanna, what is your number seven film? My number seven is the Disney's Hercules. The son of the Greek gods Zeus and Hera is stripped of his immortality as an infant and must become a true hero in order to reclaim it. This is a lot of fun. It has the voice talents of Tate Donovan, Josh Keaton, Roger Bart, but most importantly, Danny DeVito and James... Franco? James Wood. Oh, James Woods. Oh, it's Hades. Yes. Oh, gosh. And, you know, then you've got Pain and Panic, who is by Matt Frewer and Bobcat... Goldwaite? Yeah. Okay, cool. And I think the thing that I love about this film the most is the music is pretty fun and catchy. You know, like Hercules is is building his way up and all of a sudden now he's like known, so there's merchandise. Mm. And you get Hercules shoes, Hercules sodas, Hercules this, Hercules that. And Hades is freaking out because he keeps sending the most awful thing he can for Hercules to defeat, hoping that Hercules won't defeat it Hmm. so that his plan can continue. And it's not working and he's frustrated. And then all of a sudden, pain and panic are standing next to him and one of them is slurping on something. And Hades is like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) And he like turns around and sees that, you know, one of his henchmen essentially are drinking out of a soda that's Hercules branded. And then oh. the other one starts walking around in squeaky Hercules shoes. And he's like, are you wearing his merchandise? And it's like, you know, if you have to look at it from a parenting perspective, you hear the soda, you hear the fucking squeaky shoes. You're like, can I not get an inch of quiet? And so it's very fun to watch that relationship. 
Just really quickly, it seems to be a lot about hero worship. Does the film actually have anything interesting to say about hero worship? I never looked at it like that. I just looked at it from a purely surface entertainment <laughs> point of view. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, it's also your first movie on your list that is actually available to stream. Ah, uh, yes. That is from the wonderful Netflix. Yes. So, uh, my next film is Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. If you listen to my 1999 film faves, you'll hear me just absolutely adore The Spy Who Shagged Me, which was a sequel to this. I don't enjoy this as much, but this is hilarious film you know mike myers kind of came out and did something fun and different created one of the most hilarious iconic and best villains dr evil even if you don't like this movie shannon you gotta admit dr evil's pretty freaking funny okay dr evil's the best part (laughs) and and his son i think he's also in the original uh, played by seth green is i love seth green love their banter i love him yep elizabeth hurley is is fantastic and foxy in this film, of course, because that's her role. She's she's there to be foxy. But yeah, a lot of fun. Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Shanna, what's your number six film? My number six film is The Full Monty. I also saw this when I was way too young in the cinema. Anyway. <laughs> it's about six unemployed steel workers forming a male striptease act, and the women get to cheer them on to go for the what is called The Full Monty, Full, or I mean total nudity, and this yep. is a lot of British actors in this one. I was going to say big ensemble. Yeah, right? there's Robert Carlyle, there's Mark Addy, there's Steve Hayson, there's Tom Paul Barber, there's Hugo Spear. Isn't uh, Tom Tom Wilkinson in this too? Yes, let me see. Yes, there it is. Yes, Tom Wilkinson, and it's uh, also who is this? This is William Snape. What? William Snape? Yeah. That's seriously his name? Yes, apparently. <laughs> I don't from, know this guy. From Sheffield, Yorkshire. England. Okay. Well, anyway. So, anyway, I just, I love films that focus on British talents. It's nice to see them because I grew up with BBC. Hmm. So, it's nice to see them. Okay. And the film still holds up? Oh, yeah. Okay. Where can you find it? You can find it on HBO. Excellent. My next film is As Good As It Gets, which is another really great example of an ensemble film. I just recently revisited this movie to see, well, does it hold up? Is it any good? You know, is it, how good is it? And you know what? It actually is still pretty good, pretty darn good. Jack Nicholson is amazing in this movie. Just in case you don't know, he, he plays a guy who is an author, but he's got like obsessive compulsive disorder. So he's the kind of guy who has to lock and unlock the door five times when he goes into his apartment and flip the lights five times, you know, and all that sort of stuff, you know? And as such, he doesn't have really a filter for what he says. Um, he doesn't always fully understand what he, how his, what he says affects people. He just kind of like blurts out the first thing on his mind. And the first thing on his mind is not necessarily the nicest thing in the world. But he is, part of his routine is to always go to this cafe, always have the same waitress played by Helen Hunt, who is a single mom of a, a, a very sick kid. And their routine, his routine totally gets disrupted when his gay neighbor ends up being robbed and severely beaten by the robbers and he ends up going broke as a result 
he gets roped in because he's not a, he's he's done not nice things with the neighbor's dog. He gets roped in to help, being obligated to help out, help drive the neighbor to his parents to help his neighbor ask his parents for money. That's basically the premise, right, of the film. It's James L. Brooks. Honey, you know James L. Brooks from... Finding Nemo and the Simpsons. No, you're thinking of a different Brooks. James L. Brooks, he created Broadcast News. Oh my god, I love that man. Yeah, ten years earlier. The cast... Includes Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, Greg Kinnear, Cuba Gooding Jr., Skeet Ulrich, Shirley Knight, Yearly Smith, which Simpsons fans would know. But wait, there's more. You, I couldn't believe who, who pops up in this movie. Brian Doyle Murray, Missy Pyle, Shane Black, who went on to direct Iron Man 3, had already written Predator and wrote the Lethal Weapon series, by the way. You should know him. Yep. Lisa Edelstein. Jamie Kennedy, Maya Rudolph, you see, for like a, a split second as a cop, uh, which is incredible. Lawrence Kasdan, he's the guy who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. And, and Harold Ramis is in this. Julie Benz from Dexter, she has a moment. Completely unrecognizable as Todd, the director, Todd Solons. So many people. If you're an Adams Family movie fan, Jimmy Workman, who uh, played Pugsley, He's in it, too, uh, very briefly. Anyway, awesome cast, still an enjoyable film, uh, very sweet. It's loving, and it posits that you can actually, if you have a condition, you can actually work to make a change and be able to have a life. So that's as good as it gets. My number five is Boogie Nights. Woohoo! <laughs> the story of a young man's adventures in the Californian pornography industry of the late 1970s and early 1980s. And right. this stars, oh my gosh, there's just there's so many Another people. ensemble. I don't even know where to start, but you know. <laughs> start with Mark Wahlberg. Oh my gosh, so we've got Mark Wahlberg, we've got Louis Guzman. We've got Burt Reynolds, we've got Julianne Moore, we've got Rico Bueno, we've got John C. Riley, who is hilarious. Mm-hmm. We've got Don Cheadle, who I just adore. He's yep. just such a sweet, sweet, sweet man in this film. We've got Heather Graham. Yeah. We've got William. H. Macy. Yeah, H. Macy, Nina Hartley, Brad Braden. And we even have, as Mark Wahlberg's mother, uh, Joanna Gleason. Yes, Ricky Jay also appears. Philip Seymour Hoffman was also oh in this. Oh my gosh. Uh, um, and I forget that he's in there every time. Philip Baker Hall, Thomas Jane. Mm. Uh, yeah, go ahead. But what I want to say about this film, because I know you're going to probably talk about it. Being, Maybe. Because, you know, it's like your all-time favorite. Well, I, go ahead. I thoroughly enjoy the story. this story. You've got Mark Wahlberg, who is... You know, he he has quite an awful family life. His mother is not the best mother to... Oh, God, it's awful. She's just such a terrible bitch. It's pretty rough. And so damaging towards him. And then somebody, you know, sees the talent in Mark Wahlberg. Did you mention Burt Reynolds? Yes. And, like, Mark Wahlberg is like, you know what? i got to give this a shot. And... You know, I'm, I'm not really into pornography, but this, the way that they depict the story of pornography filmmaking is, is really beautiful in this 
in this film. Mm-hmm. The shots, the cinematography of this film are gorgeous. You've you've got this little bit of banter happening between the cinematographer and cameraman and you know the person who's in charge of the budget and he's going on about the person who's talking about the budget is going on about how he just wants a minimal look. And <laughs> The cinematographer is like, well, we need this light and this light and this lens. And, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the person's just trying to say it from a budget perspective. And the cinematographer is trying to say it from a cinematographic yeah. point of view. This is what we need. Yeah. <laughs> He's talking about the shadows and the shadows aren't good here and they're good here. And it's just, it's really fun banter between all this craziness of the late 70s and early 80s with, you know, cocaine makes an appearance and all of that. <laughs> a, a big appearance. And <laughs> it's just, it's really interesting to see Mark Wahlberg's story because, you know, yeah, he pretty fleshed out in his character development. Dirk Diggler. Oh, so fancy. Yes. Very cool. My next movie is Gross Point Blank. Oh, I love that film. I forgot to put it on my list. Uh, there we go. Yeah, I had a feeling it would be a regret for you. A hitman goes to his high school reunion. High concept comedy doesn't get richer than that. John Cusack stars as the hitman who returns to the small town he left behind for a life of cold-blooded violence. What's great about Gross Point Blank, aside from its soundtrack, is it marries the typical return-home tropes we can all relate to, you know, like seeing the can high we- school crush again <laughs> catching up with old friends seeing the town's changes with one of the most unlikely character types the hitman here's like does a great job balancing these two lives within his character my favorite scene has to be when <laughs> blank meets mr newberry played by mitch ryan the father of his high school crush played by minnie driver blank's upfront confession of his profession and mr newberry's congenial acceptance of the profession as if it were something like sales creates an out-of-this-world moment that is hilarious. <laughs> this film's nearly as brutally violent as it is hilarious, and it never feels uneven, though. Plus, you know, as I said, it has a fantastic soundtrack. If you don't have it and you grew up in the 80s, you should definitely have it. Um, you probably do have it. Well, anyway, you've that's... mentioned the cast, right? I mean, there's even Michael Kudlitz in it. M- who? Michael Kudlitz as Bob, doing the poetry. Oh, Michael Cudlitz, yeah, from uh, Walking Dead. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people know him from God, Walking Dead. God, he's awesome in this film. And Cusack, of course. Hank is Azaria. The yeah, Hank Azaria is, I think he's, is he one of the hitmen? Uh, Jeremy Piven, Alan Arkin. You know, you're right, Joan Cusack, uh, she's the one who plays Marcella. I forgot that Anne Cusack, the sister, makes an appearance. Yeah, great ensemble, too. That's a good point. So that's Gross Point Blank. What is Shanna... Your number four. Your fourth favorite film from 1997. Don't you think this is a fun film with three siblings? That must have been fun. Like, let's carpool to work today. Oh, you're talking about... The Cusacks. Yeah, Ghost Point Blank, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking about your number four film. I was like, what? Oh, no, no, no. My number four film is Anastasia. I This was my first film that I got to see more than once in the cinema. I think I went to go watch it three times. I was fairly young, and I really liked this take on the princess story, that it was based on something true even though it's really it's just like we want the character name Mm. you know when i eventually found out the reality of anastasia oh you're saying the movie is not really like a depiction of the actual person and stuff not 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 really yeah this is also now a broadway by the way so for fans yeah for fans out there i mean i can't wait for it to come to seattle i'm like i'm gonna be there the last surviving child of the Russian royal family joins two con men to reunite with her grandmother, the Dowager Empress. 
while the undead Rasputin seeks her death. Now, in reality, Rasputin was actually there to protect them through prayers, magic, etc. Mm. And the Dowager Empress did indeed search for the rest of her life for the missing Princess Anastasia. Mm. Because I believe there was this mystery or this story that went around that Anastasia didn't die, mm. that she was in fact alive. And there's even a story, there's a movie, a Hallmark movie about that, which isn't too bad if you're trying to go the history route of mm. through fun movies. It has a cast of Meg Ryan as Anastasia, John Cusack as oh. Dimitri, and Kelsey Grammer as Vladimir, Christopher Lloyd as Rasputin, oh. Hank Azaria as Bartok, mm. and you know a whole bunch of other. Angela Lansbury is oh, the Dowager. The Dowager Empress, mm. so well cast. Um, you know what I really loved about this film is I really liked the songs in this film, mm. and I really liked the the animation. It was kind of it's a little. There's a couple shots in there that don't really work anymore, but. I felt like Rasputin was a little bit of Scar, a little bit of some other villains with his musical number. I enjoyed that Anastasia was true to herself in mm -hmm. that she doesn't remember anything. And as she's trying to remember memories, uh, she realizes that the con, what the con men are doing. Mm -hmm. They're pulling a con. And she, she holds her ground and she's like, I am not going to be part of this con. She hmm. thought they were genuinely helping her. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I know. That's always been a favorite of yours. So and I had all the Barbie dolls for that. Oh. Not Barbie, but the Anastasia dolls for that. Very cool. My fourth favorite film is available on Netflix. It is L.A. Confidential. Oh, that's my number three. Excellent. You go first. I will. So I feel like this film deserves to be seen more often. I don't know how often this movie actually gets checked out anymore. I don't hear enough people talking about it, really. But it's a complex crime film about the desire somehow for justice and fame and how those two often become intertwined with corruption. This film is full of complex characters. Also, another great example of ensemble. I'll hit on a couple here. But uh, the complex characters elevate it above any by-the-numbers mystery. The most memorable of them are hot-headed Officer Bud White, played by Russell Crowe, who became a star with this film. Noble Detective Lieutenant Ed Exley, played by Guy Pierce before Memento. Fame-seeking Detective Sergeant Jack Vincennes, played by Kevin Spacey. And glamorous prostitute Lynn Bracken, played by Kim Basinger. The amazing cast doesn't end with those characters. You have James Cromwell, Danny DeVito, David Strathairn, and Simon Baker. It's a fine film, and I encourage anybody who enjoys well-told crime stories to check it out. This was one that I actually introduced to you, Shanna. You because, again, like Copland, I thought you might really appreciate it as a crime film. What I really enjoyed is that it was a crime film, and it was just so glamorously shot. It was just oozing... Hollywood lighting and sure. that's, that's definitely a thing for photographers is giving the Hollywood lighting look it, it was just it was like drool for my eyes so, <laughs> okay yeah and anything else you want to say about it no I mean I'm pretty happy about that film okay so my third favorite film that was your third favorite film in 1997 mm -hmm. available on Netflix my third favorite is The Fifth Element. This wild and ADD-paced sci-fi action film was directed by Luc Besson, 
I maintain this is his last good film. I know you feel differently, Shannon. But this is the same guy that directed the action thriller Leon a couple of years before. While that film proved Basson excelled at directing action, nobody would have guessed he could be responsible for such a fun, tongue-in-cheek sci-fi spectacle as The Fifth Element. If you haven't seen this film in a long time, you may wonder if it holds up or seems cheesy and lame these days, but no question about it. It holds up very well. Mm-hmm. You may be able to shoot uh, about as many holes into this thing as a Mangaloyan mercenary can its bounty, but you'd end up being quite a stick in the mud given this film clearly isn't aiming to be a sci-fi classic, even though it did become a sci-fi classic. It's just a good time. However, Basson does an amazing job at world building, going so far as to add details that weren't required, but add to the experience. Watching it now, I was struck by how incredible the score is, which I now own. It took several years to be able to obtain it and find a copy, but I got a copy, and so good. The film wouldn't have nearly as much energy or enjoyment without that lively beat in the background. Like, the diva's classical vocals contrasted with the action beat score really helped make the opera scene one of the best fight sequences. Yeah, yeah. You can't talk about the fifth element without mentioning the cast, of course. You could say this is also a really good ensemble. You got Mila Jovovich. He's never been as likable or awesome. I think this was her star-making role. And yeah, she's done Resident Evil like ad nauseum. But has she really done anything as good as the fifth element? I would argue no. You've um, also got Bruce Willis, Chris Rock. Oh, I'll get there. I'll get there. But let's talk about Mila's Lilu. Oh. Yes. You know, she's likable. She's awesome. She's quotable. She perfectly conveys a sense of innocence, wonder, and confidence, and is a joy to watch kick ass. Hurley Lowe is an excellent addition to the kick ass sci fi heroines gallery, I think. Bruce Willis, like you said, he gives another awesome, can you believe this, performance as Corbin Dallas, you know, a retired member of Special Forces. Yep, he's a taxi driver. Chris Tucker. Probably his most likable, although some people would debate that, uh, and best performance of his career as the flamboyant and annoying radio DJ, Ruby Rhodes! <laughs> Tucker's high-pitched rejoinders actually fit in perfectly with the tone of the film, I think. And then you have Ian Holm and the rest of the supporting cast. They give great performances, balancing humor and upending doom throughout. If you can't tell... I have a lot of fun with the fifth element. It is my third favorite film of 1997. Shannon, what's your second favorite film? Do you know what your second favorite well, film? Well, I mean, I just like got blown away by your description. There's no way I can top that in any fashion at all. So my second one is the fifth element, actually. It is. Yeah. No shit. Yeah, it's such a fantastic I'll film. Down. It's one of my favorite. You know, I got exposed to Star Wars pretty young, but this was my Star Wars. I watched it on repeat for you know several weeks and i really enjoyed this film and you've mentioned enough about it but i mean it's like you said like lilu is so quotable i mean we have things that we do and we say multi-pass yeah (laughs) yep absolutely absolutely (laughs) green card you know things like that and it's really fun and entertaining and i love the music and i love the story i love how everything comes together at the end awesome awesome very cool Uh, My second favorite film of 1997 is Boogie Nights. I won't carry on a whole lot about it. It, by the way, is available on Netflix, worth noting. Uh, You've said a lot about Boogie Nights already, which is really great. It's also a really great uh, ensemble cast. 
If you love a movie that gives you great character development, then you'd be hard-pressed to do better than Boogie Nights. But this isn't just a performance piece to spotlight some up-and-coming actor, which Mark Wahlberg certainly was at that time. Boogie Nights is a really great story about self-discovery, ambition, and excess. Paul Thomas Anderson excels in every way with this film, bringing out excellent performances, creating appropriate paces and tones for both the rollicking 70s and disastrous 80s, and using the camera in amazing ways. It is outrageous that Boogie Nights was overlooked by the Academy in favor of lesser yet popular films that we've mentioned uh, in our list, like The Full Monty and As Good As It Gets, further proof that perhaps five nominees were too limiting back then. Uh, if you want more on my thoughts on Boogie Nights, check out my article on, at the Gibson Review. Remember that movie, Boogie Nights. I'll try to link it in the show notes. Shanna, what is your favorite film of 1997? I believe it is the same as yours. It is Contact. I actually did not see that coming. I really did not. Why is it your favorite film of 1997? It was actually very difficult to decide between Fifth Element and Contact for me. I would expect Fifth Element from you, actually. Well, it's two of my favorite female characters. Mm. Yeah. You've got Dr. Eleanor Anne, so Ellie, played by Jodie Foster. Ellie Arroway, yep. You know, in Fifth Element, you've got Mila Jonovich being Lilu. So, you know, you've got these really really dimensional female characters yep very different from each in other. film happening and it's very difficult but i recently watched contact as a birthday movie and it was just it was such a great film i forget how great it is every time sometimes like you know i'll see the cover and i'm like i'm not really sure you know what that's about and if it's for me but mm. it's really amazing every time i watch it and i always forget what happens oh, which yeah. to me i think is good it's yeah. good to forget and then when you watch it again it's this huge surprise do you want to go ahead and describe what it's about so basically it is about what would actually happen if we were to make contact with another life form in space how would the government and society react to that and what would the science be behind that as well? Jodie Foster plays our character who's spent her whole life in search of making some sort of contact uh, with another world. And she does. And that's the basic premise of it. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who did also Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, two other favorites of yours, mm -hmm. right? And it has a great ensemble cast as well, right? Yeah, we've got Matthew McConaughey, Jenna Maloney, mm -hmm. William Fitcher. William Fickner, yeah. Ah, yes, I just realized I was not saying that right. <laughs> we've got John Hurd, David Moore, Morse, Tom Skerritt, James mm -hmm. Woods again. Yeah, Tom Skerritt, yeah, he was good in that too. Yeah, and yeah. we've got Jake Boozy, we've, even Larry Kinn appears, and so does Rob Lowe. I forgot about Rob Lowe, but I remember Angela Bassett being mm -hmm. in it. Yeah, so did you have any other thoughts about the Contact? No, I highly recommend this film. I, I think it's a fantastic film to see, especially, you know, women in science. Yeah, it's, yeah, It could right. be a really fun STEM. <laughs> we should make a STEM right. list. Oh, that would it be... It could be fun. Well, STEAM, STEAM. We should do a STEAM list. Okay, fair enough. So 
I'm just going to read from my original Film Faves article, and because this was my number one and still is my favorite film from 1997. In part, it's because I remember it gave me the best movie-going experience of that year. I think this was the first film ever to actually blow my mind. After witnessing the trip in the third act, and being exposed to the film's eye-opening ideas, I was literally speechless for at least a half hour after the credits rolled. This is kind of like the gravity experience you and I had a couple, a few years back. You know? Oh yeah, we, you know, you didn't, you weren't able to talk. <laughs> I literally was not, and this yeah. was the first film to do that to me. Another reason I thought Ellie Arroway, uh, played by both Jenna Malone and Jodie Foster, was one of the greatest characters I ever saw on film she's resolute in her beliefs and her quest to find proof of those beliefs yet quite fragile her story is a compelling one raised with a passion for science and the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence she devotes her life to someday receiving a message from the stars when she finally gets what she's devoted her life and career to she is faced with political professional religious and philosophical hurdles that stand in the way of being a part of one of mankind's greatest moments such as the story of women right <laughs> contact was also notable for its depiction of how a message from space might actually appear and be received by the government and religious groups also the trip during the film's climax is a visual spectacle akin to 2001 a space odyssey probably holds up about as well yeah i mean i think it holds up better oh, oh, oh. you know that's um, good to know you know space odyssey has fantastic uh, refurbished into blu-ray features and, and things true. like that it's true i don't know i feel like this is it doesn't feel better? too cgi it doesn't feel too artificial i mean 2001 does have its uh yeah. very like trippy artificially you know yeah i mean it. there's there's one you know at the end of the film there's oh dear you know that that has aged quite a bit but <laughs> okay. it's it's it doesn't last very long so yeah. it's it's totally fun, and she's in a sort of dream. She's like dreamy when it's happening, so uh, it's kind of, at least for a visual interpretation, it's kind of dreamy. So it's, it's not god awful. It could be better. <laughs> okay, be all right. Better. So lastly, jo Jodie Foster gives one of the strongest and most dimensional performances of her career, I think. And Matthew McConaughey, dude, man, he was good. Yeah. So here's the thing: like, there, he did this and a couple things. Like, he was actor matthew mcconaughey and then he was rom-com matthew mcconaughey for like a decade afterwards you know thankfully like in more recent years he's been getting back on the horse of like actually trying as an actor and he's been spectacular you know in films like mud and dallas buyers club and whatnot but contact for a while was the one thing that we had to prove that yes this guy actually did have something at one point and, and, and he is great, and he, he represents some great elements of the movie. Contact's yet another one of those brilliant, yet criminally underrated sci-fi films for smart people. I do feel like this is almost a forgotten film. It's an overlooked film. It's a film no one not really talks about enough, yet it was one of the best films of 1997. My personal favorite, uh, your favorite, Shanna. But what is your favorite, audience? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That's going to about do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at all my different social media channels via shannapaxton.com. S-H-A-N-N-A. 
P-A-X-T-O-N. Excellent. So check out some of the past articles and past episodes on thegibsonreview.com. Go to the social media channel on Facebook at the Gibson Review. You'll find third-party links there and links to this uh, series, The Movie Lovers. Check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud. You may be able to find us on Google Play soon if I can get time to get it up there. That is in progress. And also find me on Flickchart, the Gibson 99. Next time on The Movie Lovers, I think the main event is going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp, the next Marvel film. Are you excited about that, Shanna? I am excited. I'm also hesitant just because we watched Infinity War, and I'm like, what's going to happen in this one? Yeah. So I'm a little, I'm a little nervous, actually. <laughs> okay. I'm a little nervous. I know it's going to be great be- because... You know, it better fucking be. So, <laughs> all right. I'm just a little nervous, is all. All right, fantastic. And then, film faves, it looks like we'll be covering our favorite films from 1996. So, look for that episode on July 10th. So, just after the holiday weekend. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye bye.